You're listening to Key Matters from Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Welcome to Key Matters. I'm Kylie Smith. And I'm Dr. Oz. And we are excited to share with you, it's really our second episode, but it's our first attempt to go back to the very beginning of the magazine that Kappa started publishing in 1882 by uh, looking at some of those early issues and seeing just how interesting and relevant some of the articles that were being written and how we can track that progress of the organization. We originally thought that we would pitch different ideas and articles to one another and then argue which got to stay in the podcast and which got to to come out. (laughs) We decided recording that argument might actually be more interesting than anything else. So Dr. Oz, for this first little bit, you are covering those first four issues. So what do you want to tell us about them? Well, first, these issues were published in the early 1880s. So the United States is in the middle of the Gilded Age, a term which was coined by Mark Twain to denote how, how much progress the United States had made on the surface, but yet society was full of corruption. So I want to provide a little bit of context for these years so you have an idea of what was going on in the world beyond Kappa. So in um, 1881, Charles Guiteau assassinated President James A. Garfield, and Guiteau was hanged about a year later on June 30th, 1882. So the president's assassination and Guiteau's subsequent hanging were fresh in the minds of college students. Also in 1882, Dr. William Stuart Halstead performed the first mastectomy. Oscar Wilde embarked on a lecture tour in the United States and Canada in 1882. The Chinese Exclusion Act was passed. The first Labor Day parade occurred. And uh, Great Britain and Egypt were in the middle of a war in 1882, which resulted in Egypt becoming a British protectorate. Time zones were created in 1883, and Krakatoa erupted in August of 1883. So then, that's what's going on in the world. Let's talk for a minute about Kappa history. So 1882, Kappa is the first women's fraternity to publish a quarterly magazine. That all was a decision that came out of the convention of 1881. In 1882, Kappa is 12 years old founded in Monmouth, Illinois in 1870, and between 1870 until 1881, Kappa is run by what's called the Grand Chapter. One chapter is in charge. They are designated by all the rest of the the groups in the organization to take care of business, which had to be difficult for undergraduates who are full-time students and trying to, to run what is going to become an international organization. In 1881, Tade Hearts of Coons is elected the first grand president. This is kind of an experimental new government called the Grand Council form of government, where someone is just elected. We don't really have many older alumni just 11 years after the fraternity's founding, so many of these leaders are really young. Tade Coons, though, and several of her really progressive friends had big ideas for this Grand Council form of government. They wanted to publish 
a magazine that would help keep the organization connected. And they also decided to set up provinces. They divided the country into these sections so that leadership could be taken on more of a regional level while that grand council was was really the big picture group of leaders. So that's the Kappa history as we're leading into this very first issue, May 1882. And it's important to note, they really are just getting their footing there. I mean, this is a huge deal to gather information from an organization that's flung all the way across the continent um, and then have it printed. I mean, I live in a big city and it took me a little while to figure out how to even find a printer. So they had to get these things printed and they had to figure out how to mail them. So it wasn't quarterly right off the bat, but that was their goal. And fun fact about the printers, Randall and Fish, they were located on 24 South Pennsylvania Street in the Wholesale District in Indianapolis, which is near Monument Circle and Circle Center Mall today. Several restaurants and bars occupied the block where Randall and Fish used to be. But there's just so much love for Indiana and all these issues. It just makes me so happy. Dr. Oz, a good and true Hoosier. All right, so what was happening in May 1882? So... Some of the things that really caught my attention are how methodical these authors, and in particular the editor, uh, Minetta Taylor, are. They, she's very clear about stating the goals of the golden key, as it was known then, and explaining how monumental this publication is going to be. This is the first one of its kind. And the other thing that really struck me is how much they're in dialogue with the men's fraternities. And because there is an attack on, on these secret societies, so it, they seem to understand how important it is for them to come together and share information and, and tactics and talk about the good that these societies promote. Well, and I noticed that later when I am going through my issues, I start in 1884. You can tell that Kappa is the first women's fraternity to publish because they have no one else to talk to. <laughs> they really are only corresponding with the men's groups at that time. The other thing that's really surprising that we don't see as much today is the caliber of literary work that these chapters are producing. And Minetta Taylor is amazing. I love her essay, uh, The Last Days of February, because it reminds me of the end of Bald Mountain, Night on Bald Mountain from Fantasia. But there's just, there's such imagery, and you can tell that, that the key was as an outlet for all of this creative expression, that they, they don't really have a place to experiment with different forms and you know this is this is really serving as another like extracurricular activity because these types of organizations don't yet exist on college campuses and minetta is such a prolific poet the number of times that there are just these long and beautiful poems throughout the magazine nine times out of ten they're attributed back to minetta in these early issues when she's the editor and I like to imagine Minetta sitting at her editor's desk and, you know, so excited to pull together all the material that she's gathered from chapters across the country and then thinking, seriously, this is all they sent me? And then she had to fill in the blanks. And how often, just in thinking about how our magazines are put together today, they're so planned out because there's way more content that can ever go in there. I would imagine in these earliest years, as they're pleading for content, asking people to write things in, <laughs> Minetta was either feverishly writing stuff to add in herself or calling on her friends and 
you know, asking them, hey, can you quick write something up and stick it in? Because uh, I, need, I need to actually build out this issue and make it worthwhile. One of the other, so I want to go back to kind of this attack on, on fraternities. One quote from the first issue that I really liked is this one. By the great mass of people who can know the nature and working of these fraternities only from this newspaper literature, they are no doubt regarded as purely evil. And so the author goes on by asking whether abolishing them is really going to, abolishing these fraternities is really going to do any good because you haven't eliminated the true source of the problem or these, these students that are engaging in scandalous behavior. They're still going to engage in it. Abolishing an organization is just going to cause them to go elsewhere. Which I think is a valid argument that we continue to pose today. Students will be students and will do things that aren't the smartest. And so Greek organizations, I think, have the opportunity to help lead them in a better direction, help students realize that they can make better decisions and that they can do better things with their time. All right, what else you got? Oh, one other thing that's, that's really interesting that comes up in this first issue about within this debate on whether fraternities should exist is that the key is quick to point out that women's fraternities provide management skills. Well, and, and men's fraternities as well, but this is, a, this is especially important for women. Um, they aren't going to get this training anywhere else. So there's a, very, uh, there's a very practical reason why they need to exist. Okay, well, moving on to December 1882, uh, National Convention is a big topic. Again, just the number of details that are involved with planning an organization like that and remembering that these are young women and they don't have all the modern conveniences that, that we do today. And so it's just, it's quite a feat for them to be able to do this. They had already gotten used to the every other year cycle. Um, so I imagine it was exciting to have another convention so soon, uh, right after that 1881, to have another one in 1882. And Minnie was there. That's pretty cool. Minnie was there. And one of the exciting things about Minnie attending convention is that she had been working or trying to work on a complete history of the fraternity from its origins up until the present time. But then according to this issue of the key, owing to the death of his sister Kappa, who had in her possession the earlier chronicles, she was unable to procure the necessary information. So it would have been amazing if we could have, our first history would have been written by many. And there's an interesting discrepancy here too, because I thought Alice Pillsbury lost the records, or at least, or they were destroyed or in a fire or something like that. I always heard that there were sort of two stories of people passing the buck. That Alice Pillsbury had them, but then handed them off to another relative that moved to California, and then they were just lost forever. So I'm sure there were lots of different ways to explain away <laughs> the loss of those early materials. Yeah. I don't know. I need to go out to California and look up the surviving members of the, the Stewart family. And, um, well, and how mad must have many been knowing that their family kept everything. We still have like their family scrapbooks. We have letters that they wrote to each other for many to be the first president of this organization that would become international and have them lose the first eight years worth of materials from 1870 to 1878. She was probably like, 
are you kidding me? <laughs> she must have been so mad. I would have been. Yeah. Yeah. That's the archivist's worst nightmare. <laughs> worst nightmare. <laughs> um, okay. So moving on to, to 1883, um, shout out to Purdue. You're featured in, in this issue heavily. So in the Indiana Senate, there was a great deal of discussion about funding for higher education, and Purdue is a land-grant university, and they're about to lose all of their funding. And then one of the senators, Senator Willard, stood up and said, they're about to lose their funding because of their support of secret societies. And then Senator Willard stood up for students' civil liberties and described how beneficial fraternities could be to young men in particular, but these same benefits could also apply to young women. And then this, this particular article goes into a great deal of discussion about how fraternities developed this negative connotation, and it has to do with the decadence that was kind of running rampant during the reign of King George III when um, men's fraternities were founded, and I believe the first one was founded at the College of William and Mary. And it was, it was customary for young men to gamble and drink, and so then these fraternities kind of took on that um, reputation of their their dissolute young men but that's that wasn't all the members they didn't all engage in that and so it was just interesting to hear about kind of Purdue's situation and and you know they're in a, they were in a great deal of trouble but but get some senators some politicians realizing oh no we should think about the students civil liberties so I thought that was interesting also um, some one of the other founders shows up in a couple of issues. Jenny Boyd evidently moved to Bloomington, Illinois, so it's fun to hear about some of the other founders. In June 1883, the debate on secret fraternities continues, and it really reminds me a lot of a similar debate that was going on about whether or not the liberal arts were important, how beneficial, because the industrial age is moving on and there's a great deal of emphasis on education and, and mechanical arts and on things that produce tangible results. And we see that pendulum swinging, you know, back and forth even now and, you know, questioning whether or not college is even important. And so it just, it just reminds me that, you know, there's nothing really new and that history repeats itself. It's kind of comforting in a way. I was interested to note they mentioned, the fraternities especially, mention liberal thought later. And now, with our society being so divisive and the two political parties and conservatives and liberals and on and on, that caught my eye immediately. I thought, oh my gosh, they're just adding to that argument that colleges are a hotbed of, of liberals. Um, but they're, they're talking about the liberal arts form of education. Right, yeah, because liberal, liberal didn't even mean the same thing. Right, not then. even a, a political theory at the time. So it's funny how reading this with my modern mindset, I carry in a ton of baggage <laughs> when I'm going through all those articles. Yeah. Um, out of the chapter newsletters, thought it was interesting that Beta celebrated a tree holiday, which is an early spring festival, by planting a tree at 5 a.m. I also noticed that um, in Monmouth College's yearbooks, they used to celebrate May Day. That was a big deal, and it's just kind of fallen by the wayside, but just kind of that, that celebration of nature. And well, and you know why? They probably were up at 5 a.m. planting trees because they didn't have electricity, <laughs> so they were up with the sun and down to bed with the moon. 
That's true. Yeah. Probably easier to wake up early. If you ask students today to wake up at 5 a.m. to plant a tree or not, they're probably, probably not. Yeah, that's probably not going to happen. I'd be there, but no. Right. <laughs> um, also, uh, Kate Shelley was mentioned in yes. 1883. So shout out to your chapter. Yeah. Well, that's all I have. Oh my gosh, I have so much more. I did remember and looked it up to confirm while you were talking, I was listening, but also I looked it up, that the 1882 convention was in Wisconsin and hosted by Ada Chapter. That was to kind of make up for the big snafu that had happened in 1880. So they, they spoke very positively about how well they were hosted by, hostessed by um, Ada Chapter and, and what a wonderful time they had. And interesting to note that back then, then conventions were still only three days long. We were actually, we're going to shorten the 2020 convention, but in like the thirties and forties, they became these week long affairs. Sometimes they were even longer than a week with the weekend before and after, but these, these earliest conventions, it took you half the time to get there. And then you would spend a, a few days at the convention and then it took you the same amount of time or more to get home. So I picked up with volume two, you were doing volume one. So those first four issues really were the editor, Minetta Taylor and her crew, figuring out how they wanted to publish this journal. So the very first article I was thrilled to happen upon is by First Grand President Tade Hearts of Coons, and the title is Fraternity Responsibility. And it's one of her more famous quotes that we have used in a lot of our publications. And it's those first three sentences that she writes, quote, the character of a fraternity is to some extent determined by the quality of its individual members, but its success as an organization depends upon their united efforts for the attainment of its aim and object. Hence, fraternity responsibility is twofold. Both as chapters and as individual members of the fraternity, we are directly responsible for the name and reputation of our order. And those sentences could not be more poignant or meaningful even today as we as a larger organization try to function with smaller groups all coming together to um, achieve the, the same object and aim. Then scrolling through, they're also still trying to figure out how to share things and identity as, as these chapters that are all across the country. This is still the time when some chapters had their own colors. They had their own coat of arms. <laughs> a lot of those things Alpha had decided, but then individual chapters were like, oh, well, we're going to pick our own colors too, because they weren't connected as a group. The magazine really serves as that connector. Um, then on page 12 in this first issue, they pull together a lot of the opinions of the men's groups and a panel and a conference. They are trying, they being great groups at this time, so not just Kappas, but Kappas are the only ones publishing a magazine to talk about it. They're trying to get everyone together to discuss how they might work better in being Greek organizations. And I love the Delta Kappa Epsilons, the Deeks, who wrote, since we have not found it necessary to explain that we were in need of no such organization, our precedents have long been established, our lines of development long since fixed, and though we can hardly expect that no modification of our methods will ever be adapted, it is from within, not from without, that must come the direction for change. 
they could care less what any of the other groups have to say. And they think that they are the strongest of any of them. I think this is also, these magazines are kind of like the early internet. People probably felt a lot braver writing this stuff rather than trying to speak face to face. So they're all writing their opinions about how they don't need a, a panhellenic conference and it will only serve to benefit the weaker of the groups. Would they say that probably to their faces? I doubt it. I feel like they would be. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good observation. And and some of those comments are submitted anonymously or just nobody can call them out on it, really. Right. Like, who's verifying a letter to the editor? No one. <laughs> they could have gotten it from whatever. Uh, one thing they also, they had a really high opinion of themselves, the men's groups especially, and what the function of the fraternities were. So again, this is a, another Delta Kappa Epsilon writer who is pointing out that the college used to exercise parental functions, and fraternities were really just a way to share the expense of a meeting room. We want to get together. It's going to cost us money to have a space to meet because campuses didn't have student centers. They really only had classrooms, and that was it. But then they talked about how that really started to reverse the roles of the college now had sort of a lack of parental guidance. And they were assuming that this parental guidance would be supplied by the fraternal interference and influence of the Greek chapters. So seeing these fraternities functioning as parents is an interesting shift in how they see one another. That must be particularly true or maybe only applied to public universities because those founded by religious denominations would have already had that kind of parental influence that mm -hmm. doesn't go away for a really long time. Right, right. The issues that I went through, especially that first one, they were mostly editorials and exchanges. There were some, there were some poems, but it's not quite as academic and literary as it becomes in the next couple of issues. Then I knew you would appreciate the notice on page 27 that Kappa Kappa Gamma has placed three excellent chapters this year. Ta at Syracuse, which would become Beta Ta, Psi at Cornell, and at the Kansas State University. This was all in 1884. So Kansas State University eventually became known as University of Kansas, KU. So then it said, the fraternity now consists of 20 chapters, all of which are in a thriving condition. I looked back at what would what chapters would soon close or face troubles. They were not all thriving. <laughs> sure, if we're going to put that in our magazine, we want to be positive about it. And then just the way our chapters functioned, they were much more of a academic and scholarly outlet because women weren't given that opportunity, even if they were allowed in the classroom on a campus like at Monmouth, pretty, or, well, very early on from the beginning, women were educated on the same equal footing as men. They didn't have that outlet to sort of practice their skills the way men did with their fraternities. So I loved that in Iota's letter, at DePauw University, they ended with, as an intellectual exercise, we have been reading Shakespeare and making a study of some of his characters. We find it quite beneficial. I would love to find a chapter today that says, and by the way, we are studying Shakespeare and his characters. <laughs> and one error that's interesting to note, the chapter at Minnesota, Chi chapter, for a long time was known as Z chapter, XI. And they think it's because in the correspondence, the I was written a little bit too small. 
And so they misread it as Kai. So in this, in this issue of the magazine, their letter comes from Z chapter XI from Minneapolis, and it's signed that way. So they wrote the letter in November 1883. There's no letter from Z chapter, which is from Adrian College in Michigan, and it doesn't really get cleared up until the 1884 issues. So I also liked Psy chapter at Cornell. It was their very first letter. They had just been established and they said, it shall be our constant endeavor by the admission of such and by our earnest work to prove that Psy chapter is a most helpful one. So they really did want to impress the rest of the organization. And then the personals. Can you imagine if this appeared in the key today? On page 38, they gave the news that Miss Peabody of Phi Chapter in Boston is spending the winter in Louisville. <laughs> and then they gave notices on who was traveling and studying abroad and who was visiting their relatives. And we certainly don't have room for that in our issues. It's like a local newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, volume two, number two. This is from eight, April 1884. And they still have that error in printing. They still say volume three. So it's pretty confusing. It takes them a while to fix that. And this is where they really become more academic. You can tell content is being submitted by members. There's one and it's unidentified. So it may have just come from one of the editors at the time, but it's an academic comparison of religions. Um, And it talks about their origin stories and their traditions. And they include the traditions of Christian, Buddhist, Druid, Greek, Persian, Romans, Hebrews. So that idea of expanding their minds out beyond their own experience is is interesting. Oh yes, then I came across an article called on page 20, are the fraternities always magnanimous? Magnanimous meaning generous or forgiving. And the quick answer was no, they are not. They are not always generous and forgiving. And then this is from a men's group. The fraternity that can bestow unlimited praise upon a rival is on the high road to dissolution. So basically, if you can be kind to everyone else, you're probably not going to last, which rude. (laughs) And again, that whole notion of if these conversations happened in person, probably wouldn't be, wouldn't be nearly as blunt. Oh, and then this issue is from April 1884. Finally, 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 they received their first exchange with a ladies fraternity. So for these first two years, they've just been functioning among the men, and they've gotten high praise from the men's groups, but they finally have their first exchange with a ladies' fraternity, the Delta Gamma Ankara. And then, quote, while it is small and unpretentious in appearance, it shows a creditable amount of energy and purpose. So it must have been lonely for them to just be the only woman's voice, or they loved it because they got to represent a whole swath of the population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they might have they might have reveled in it. Because then they also included an editorial from uh, Delta Kappa Epsilon. They must have corresponded with them more frequently than the others. But DKE writes, the golden key of KKG retains its leading position among Greek journals. Its management is progressive, and although of a more decided literary cast than other journals, it contains much of general fraternity interest. So that's my compliment there. This is the issue where Z chapter is the chapter at Michigan. Uh, And there's no note from Minneapolis. So Chi chapter, they're probably still trying to figure out why did they call us Z in the previous issue? And we're not sending you another letter if you keep misidentifying us. 
Then I had volume two, number three, December 1884. This whole thing is where they were talking about the convention at St. Lawrence. They used a lot of really colorful language. The rapid, vigorous, and radical progress of Kappa Kappa Gamma as a whole had created many new needs and time and care were required to provide wisely for them. So they were sort of explaining why it took them three, three days to have this convention. They reported that 21 of the 24 chapters were in good condition. Um, sadly, especially for you out there in Monmouth, Alpha and Rho, their charters were recalled because of faculty opposition and new chapter. Their charter was recalled because of low educational standards of the college, which Ouch. New chapter is at Franklin College in Franklin, Indiana. And that's also the chapter of Emma Harper Turner, one of the most famous members of Pi Beta Phi. She was a member of New Chapter. When they recalled that charter, she fought and fought and fought along with all of the other members. They said, why? We're functioning. We're doing our thing. But Kappa was adamant and they recalled that charter. They later said it was some misunderstandings. But so because there weren't any Panhellenic rules or resolutions in place, Turner requested a charter from Pi Beta Phi, IC Cirrhosis at the time. It was granted, and she went on to become a grand president for Pi Beta Phi. So we lost a good one in Emma Harper Turner, and she did a ton of good things for and with Pi Beta Phi. So uh, lucky them. And Alpha, they had really been gone since 1878. But at this convention in 1884, there's a neat letter that we found off of eBay uh, years ago, written from Tade Coons to Alpha Chapter, demonstrating that the convention recognizes that we can only have chapters functioning where they're actually functioning. And Alpha was, was functioning underground. They weren't even recognized by the university. So they had to recall the charter just for the technicality of it. And Alpha was okay with that. Many had essentially said to that convention, we can't be an active chapter anymore. It's just not possible. And so they were recognizing that Alpha is still our Alpha chapter. We still honor and recognize it, but we are removing the requirements that you must fulfill to be an active chapter. So that was a sad letter, I'm sure, that Tade had to write. And then they withdrew the charter from Ohio Wesleyan Row chapter. So, and this I loved. Tade Coons was the, the closing speaker. And she spoke of the beginning of the fraternity, and she advised members at the time to look back as well as forward for both inspiration and improvement. They also describe that this convention is really the close to the experimental stage of government by Grand Council. They started it in 1881. They were like, well... Let's see how it goes. And it lasted from 1881 to 1884. And it was good. So they elected their second grand president in Charlotte Barrel Ware. And they, it said, the experimental stage of government by grand council is closed. And it proves that that government was an absolute and complete success. So rave reviews for Tade Coons. This is also when they announced that the key was supposed to be edited by Ada Chapter at Wisconsin. But that didn't happen. There were lots of things going on at Wisconsin that made it so they couldn't. So then Council was the editor, and they were like, yeah, we don't have time for it. So they asked Minetta if she would start editing again. So she got stuck doing that. Well, she probably, I mean, given what everything going on, she, she might have been glad to take it back. I, I, you know, if I'd been so influential in starting something, and then you wouldn't want to see it go to ruin. 
So. Yeah. Well, and she's very kind to, uh, they give a lot of credit to the chapter at DePauw. And it says, you know, we had hoped here at DePauw to read the magazine and hear news from other people without having to put it together ourselves, but that's fine. We'll still do it. But you can really tell from early on, even if she received the support of her chapter, it was the Minetta Taylor show. And it's the magazine is for the better for it, but she's wonderful to give a lot of credit to other people. Um, I think it really was the Minetta show. And then this last issue that I looked at for volume two, number four, it's the March 1885 issue. And you can really see how the editorial style is expanding. Probably Minetta gets it dumped in her lap again. And she's like, all right, cool. Uh, These are all the things that I wanted to recommend to the next editors. We're going to do it ourselves. So they added book reviews. There were additional literary and academic articles in the beginning Oh, they're discussing issues of the fraternity. They really are expanding what they're talking about. Kai Chapter from Minnesota writes an open letter explaining why they refused to approve an honorary member in Gamma Province. So in order to get honorary members, everyone in that province would have had to vote on it. And Kai Chapter is saying, sorry, you may not have understood why we declined it. It wasn't because she wasn't important. They don't say who the actual member was, but they point out too that having honorary members is kind of silly if the whole purpose of membership is to be close and share the bond of sisterhood they point out that honorary members they can't even be with us they cannot even think of us at all because they have entered upon their life's work that's how we came upon them to be honorary members so kind makes a pretty strong argument as to why we may not want to talk about having honorary members anymore. They're also, hooray for us, setting up expectations for chapter records and archives. They're saying, as a matter of fact, chapters must maintain their archives. Chapter archives ought to present a faithful picture of chapter life, fraternity life as the chapter sees it, and individual life among the members. And the history should be continued at successive epochs in both a way that there would be no gaps in it. One thing we forgot to mention is that the cover of the magazine during this time period is kind of a a muted brown with a bright gold key in the center. So it really fit the title, The Golden Key. Um, But the next issues that we're going to cover are a robin's egg blue with a bright gold key in the middle. So they're changing things up. Minetta was getting bored. That Tiffany influence. Yes. You've been listening to Key Matters, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum is in Monmouth, Illinois. And you can find us online at kappa.org. All Things 150th is at our special website, kappaturns150.org. And you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Research and production is done by Dr. Mary Osborne and me, Kylie Smith. Thank you.